This is 105.9 The Region. There are so many ways of communicating these days, but nothing seems to beat the one-on-one. This is In Conversation with Ann Romer. Welcome to In Conversation. This show is, in my view, up front, up close, and in this case, off the record. Peter Mansbridge is one of this country's finest and fiercest journalists. He's a broadcaster extraordinaire with nerves of steel and a heart of gold. Peter delivered the news in his own unique way for more than 50 years and had a real knack for bringing the viewer with him into the center of the story he was reporting on. The fall of the Berlin Wall, 9-11 as the horror was unfolding, tsunamis, earthquakes, homegrown terror, assassinations, elections, space exploration, war and peace. And then, of course, there's the good old-fashioned one-on-one, and nobody does it better. World leaders, global movers and shakers, local heroes for humanity like Gord Downey. And with his new book, Off the Record, released just this month, the spotlight is on him. Peter is now the one answering the tough questions. He lifts the veil and pulls back the curtain on his life and times. Peter Mansbridge joins us now in conversation. Welcome to the show. Nice to be chatting with you again, Peter. Hey, Anne, it's always good to talk to you. And after that intro, <laughs> I'll tell you, you should have written a book. That, yeah, or, or I should just publish that. That's all that has to go out there. <laughs> you are. Well, I'll tell you, it was an easy thing to write. I've been watching you and following you. We're similar in age. But I, I just have a real affinity for, for broadcasters like you who do the job, do it well, and do it with integrity. Well, that's very kind of you. I, I appreciate all those words, and, and I send them back to you, too. Well, so. thank you. So, off the record, interesting title, and I'm sure now that we hear sirens in the background of this recording, you're probably thinking, now, what should I be doing? I, sh- I need to get on this story, right? <laughs> <laughs> there is, it's funny, you know, there is part of that in any journalist. Of course. That uh, no matter how experienced they are, no matter how old they are, um, when you hear a siren, you go, I better check that out. You never know what it might mean. <laughs> Absolutely. So you've spent so much of your career asking questions of other people. This time around, you are letting it all out for everyone to hear, to read, to see, to understand your life and times. Why did you decide to do that? Well, I've been asked by a number of publishers for a number of years to do a kind of memoir, and I wasn't interested in doing a memoir that the, the, the whole word gives me the kind of heebie-jeebies it sounds like you're all done well I you know I don't feel like I'm done I've got, I've got lots of other things that I'm projects that I'm still doing but um, the idea behind this was to tell the kind of stories that you didn't tell on air but happened at the same time kind of you know for an example you know people don't ask me what did Barack Obama say in the interview you did with him? Mm-hmm. They asked me, what was it like being in the White House with Barack Obama? So that, that's the kind of thing that you didn't really tell on the air, but there are always stories you know, around issues like that, events like that. And so that's what this book is. It's kind of the stories behind the stories. Some of them are funny, some of them are emotional. They all tell you a little bit about journalism or they tell you something about Canada. And uh, so I had a lot of fun writing it. So what was it like for you to be in the White House when you were there to interview <laughs> Barack Obama? <laughs> well, he'd, he'd just become president. You know, it was, a, it was the first foreign interview he'd given. And it was just, uh, I guess, about four weeks after uh, the inauguration in uh, 2009. 
And it was, you know, you know, the White House, the White House. I'd been, you know, there a number of times going back to the Reagan years. But it was the first time I'd had an interview one-on-one -on -one with a president, sitting president. And uh, so it was a thrill. It was pretty exciting. But it was also quite revealing because he was new. He was still enjoying the moment. I mean, the last thing he said to me after uh, we'd, you know, taken some pictures and had our formal interview and done all that, he said, I'm about to leave on the helicopter. Come out and watch it. It's really neat. You know, like... Really? The U.S. president thinks it's neat That's to fly in a helicopter? But, he, you know, I'm sure he wasn't saying that a few months into the job because at that moment he was the biggest rock star in the world. So he was fun to talk to. You know, it's interesting. That went well and he was in a great mood and he was, uh, you know, a kid at heart, which we know he still is. So on the flip side of the coin, when you're talking about world leaders, what was your experience like with Maggie Thatcher? Yeah, we don't want to talk about that, Ann. <laughs> that bad, huh? <laughs> yeah. So, you know, I actually interviewed her a couple of times before at events, you know, like uh, when she was prime minister. This interview that you're referring to was in Toronto when she was on her book tour after she'd been thrown out as leader <laughs> of the Conservative Party and prime minister in Britain. And she was just in a foul mood. Um, you know, she kept saying, you obviously haven't read my book. And I actually had read her book, and it wasn't a very good book. <laughs> but, you know, it, all the way through, no matter what question I asked her, the answer was the same. You obviously haven't read my book. So it was a bit of a disaster. And it was one of those interviews where you go, you're sort of halfway through it, and you know, this is going nowhere. Yeah. This isn't working. So it, let me get out of this as soon and as gracefully as I can. And that's what I tried to do. You have interviewed so many prime ministers, sitting and former, here in Canada. Can we talk about the difference between Pierre Elliott Trudeau and Justin Trudeau, in your opinion? They're very different. Are they? You know, Pierre Trudeau was. You know, they were also different in terms of my career, right? When I was interviewing Pierre Trudeau, it was at the beginning of my uh, career as a political correspondent. Justin Trudeau has been. You know, in in the <laughs> in my current days, um, so I was different. I had a different experience uh, as a journalist, and my abilities were much different at that point. So with Pierre Trudeau, you know, he those were tough interviews. You know, he he was you know always kind to you, but you know if you didn't know what you were talking about, he was able to expose that pretty easily. Uh, so I I probably interviewed him I don't know eight or ten times. And uh, there were only a couple of them that I would show you as examples of, of a good interview. Um, but uh, Justin Trudeau is, you know, very different. He's more of a kind of man of the people. I, they, they both instill deep passions on the part of Canadians. Some people can't stand either one of them. Um, and uh, others are, you know, kind of in love with, with the two of them. But they're different in terms of their skills, their abilities, and their uh, likes and dislikes. But well, there's both very successful politicians. You know, Pierre Trudeau uh, only lost one election, and that was to Joe Clark, the only person to ever beat a Trudeau. And Justin Trudeau's never lost an election, so that tells you something. What's it like for you when you watch, for instance, the recent election? The call was quick, the, sh the time was very short campaigning, and the outcome was pretty similar to the last election. So you're not in the chair. You're not covering the election per se. What's it like to be uh, to be watching from the sidelines? 
Well, it was very different, obviously, for me after I, you know, the last time I hadn't been involved in an election night coverage was 1968. So it was a long gap. But in some ways, it was really exciting for me because I got a chance to actually watch the way different broadcasters and different networks do an election night. Um, because I'd never had that opportunity before because, I, you know, obviously I was working. But uh, so this was fun. I enjoyed it. Interesting. I did the same thing. I did a lot of channel surfing. And what I noticed was there is a great deal of diversity now within the newsrooms, within the, uh, the, the product that is being put forward. What are your thoughts on that? Is it a case where the right person is chosen to do the job or the person is chosen because of his or her background? I think the right people are the people that uh, can do their do the job, but at the same time um, show a reflection of what our country is today and how our country looks today, and the, the opportunity for those of a diverse background to look at a television set or listen to a radio program and know that that program actually reflects me as well as uh, as everybody else and you know i think that's an important part of the maturing of a of a nation which we've been going through i mean when i started in the mid 60s um you know it, it was hard to find a woman in the news business let alone uh, other examples of the diversity that we see now so that moved along fairly rapidly with women um, and, but now it's taken on a, a you know a totally different uh, level in the last 20 years of showing uh, much more diversity in terms of not just gender but geographic uh, location, uh, race, creed, color, all of that. Uh, and I think that uh, you know that that's good for us as a nation and certainly good for us as broadcasters. You know, I hearken back to one of your best one-on-one -on -one interviews ever, and that's just my humble opinion, but it was with the late, great Gord Downey. You, as a true professional, Peter Mansbridge, kept your thoughts and opinions to yourself. So I'm mixing the two together here. What were your thoughts on the discovery of mass graves of Indigenous children at residential school sites and how Canada and Canadians and the government reacted to it? Well, you know, I, I started my career in northern Manitoba, and a lot of the early stories that I did involved indigenous people, so that be they Inuit or Dene or Cree, um, and very few of those stories were stories that, uh, that were good news. They were awful. They were terrible stories, and they showed the racist nature of some elements of our country. Um, I always look back at that time and think that I didn't do enough uh, in terms of exposing that and in terms of helping resolve it and solve it uh, to make a better country. Um, I've tried to deal with that issue uh, by exposing certain things over the uh, many years since, but nobody did as much as Gord did, as Gord Downey did, in trying to focus the minds of Canadians on the um, issues surrounding residential schools. I mean, I, you know, I was working in a town that had a residential school in Churchill, Manitoba. And, you know, we had uh, Indigenous kids from all over northern Manitoba and the central Arctic would come there. 
and, and those were, you know, difficult moments for those kids, and yet they, it operated within a community that was not really aware of what was going on behind the walls of those schools. Um, anyway, Gord tried to uh, focus our minds, especially after the uh, uh, Truth and Reconciliation Commission, Murray Sinclair, had given his uh, results and recommendations. But we all reacted slowly to it. I mean, we were all horrified um, in this most recent summer when the news came out about the unmarked graves, and yet it was all in Murray Sinclair's report, you know, five or six years ago. He told us, he warned us this was coming. And, uh, and, and nobody seemed to take it seriously. They are taking it more seriously now, but there's a lot of amends to be, uh, to be made up in terms of the relationship between indigenous and non-indigenous in this country. And it's not all one-sided here. There are, there are issues on both sides of that equation. But until we resolve that, we're not going to be the country we think we are and want to be until we've come to grips with some of our past. Is it safe to say that some of us on that very first day when when it became public knowledge in a way that we hadn't heard before, that some of us were ashamed to be Canadians on that day? I think we, I, I'm not sure we're ashamed to be Canadians, but we're ashamed of our past and want to do something to, um, uh, to reconcile it. Uh, you know, I, there, there's lots of reason to be proud of Canada and to be proud of uh, who we are and how we're seen around the world. But this is a blemish on our record. And uh, we, we do need to resolve, we, we first need to concede it, and then we need to resolve the relationship and move on together. And I think that's all doable. We've shown in, through certain crises in the past that we can handle these issues. This one is, is a very difficult one. It strikes to the heart of who we are, um, and it strikes to the heart of the fact that in too many areas of this country, there's still a feeling that there's a difference between those who were here first and those of us who came here later. And that can't be, not if we're going to be successful in the long run. When we come back, a young Peter Mansbridge is discovered Hollywood style. This is In Conversation with Ann Romer. Is there someone you want to learn more about? Drop us a line. Info at 1059theregion.com. Ann Romer will be right back on 1059 The Region. Welcome back to In Conversation with Ann Romer on 1059 The Region. We are back in conversation with Peter Mansbridge. Peter, legend has it that you were discovered while working at the Churchill, Manitoba airport. Can you confirm? <laughs> oh, Anne, you don't believe that I silly don't, story, do you? No, but I want to get it right from, with all due respect, from the horse's mouth. You are no horse, but you're... <laughs> no, uh, it, it actually is true. Just don't tell any young journalism <laughs> students this, because they all think that, man, he went straight from the baggage counter at Churchill, Manitoba, to reading the National. It didn't quite work that way, but it did start that way. I mean, I was 19 years old. I was working you know, uh, slogging bags at uh, the Churchill Airport when one day they asked me to read the um, flight announcement over the PA system in the terminal building, and I did. And the next thing I knew, there was a guy standing in front of me saying, you've got a great voice. Have you ever thought about being in radio? 
And I said, no, I hadn't. And he said, I'm the manager of the CBC station here. I can't get anybody to work the late night shift. Would you be interested? And that's I started the next night. You know, no interview with the HR department, none of that. I was just, boom, right on air. And, uh, and that's how things started. Now, it was a long journey from there uh, to uh, Toronto. Uh, many years, 20 years later, but that's, that is true. That is how it started. I would think that it even began for you prior to that. And here's what I mean. And it's similar to my growing up, my childhood, where what was discussed around the dinner table was very meaningful and helped to shape my goals and my future. How about you around your dinner table, Peter Mansbridge? Absolutely. Just similar to that. I mean, you had remarkable parents. I know your father well, just, you know, a Canadian icon, a Canadian hero, and the stories that he has to tell. I've been lucky enough to hear him tell me uh, a few of them. Uh, But uh, that's exactly how I grew up. uh, You know, uh, I was born in England. The first couple of years were spent in England, then we moved to Malaya in Southeast Asia before coming to Canada. And as far back as I can recall, we'd sit around the the dinner table, and sometimes in the lunch table as well, and we would talk, my sister and I, and eventually my younger brother, we would talk with our parents about whatever the big stories of the day were. And, um, you know, we'd debate them. And my father encouraged that kind of discussion, to be curious, to ask questions, to challenge assumptions, and then, you know, to tell others what you learn. And that's kind of what journalism is all about. So you're right. Some of it was, you know, naturally instilled in me and just needed the opportunities and the experience and the training uh, to do uh, an even better job at it. You know, it's interesting. Accuracy and discipline, I think, are both very important when you're a journalist. Uh, Your father was a World War II RAF veteran. The military was what he was all about for a certain length of time. Then he moved to be a British public servant. So did either of those roles influence you? Did, did his military uh, acumen and background and the fact that he was a public servant, did that have a bearing on how you short, sort of shaped your future as a young man? I, I think both of those elements of his past shaped my respect for those who are in the military, spent time in the military, and for those who um, uh, offer themselves up in public service of any kind. Um, you know, John Turner used to say, and, you know, right up to, you know, the day he died, that you know, if you believe in democracy, you have to um, be prepared to participate. And whether that means, you know, in, in terms of a profession as a public servant or simply as voting, that you've got to participate in the process. And once we stop doing that, we'll lose what we, uh, what we cherish, and that's a, a democratic system. Uh, so, yes, the short answer to your question is yes, they definitely had an influence on me. That was a long question, and I appreciate your short answer. So we talk, <laughs> we talk about war, we talk about peace. Let's go to war at this point. And there was something in your book that really, really struck me, and that was you were reporting in Jerusalem. You were reporting moments after a bombing nearby, and you were asked by a CBC anchor how many people had died. Why did that bother you so much? What was triggered by that question, Peter? Um, 
Well, it all happened in a hurry. It was, you know, the uh, there was it was a time. It was during the second intifada, and there were a lot of suicide bombings taking place. And this one happened, you know, a block or two from our office. So as soon as we heard the explosion, we rushed out there. We got there, and you know, it, it's a terrible scene after one of those situations. It's chaos, obviously. There's the, there's a lot of blood, and there are body parts all over the place. And this was all literally within minutes of the explosion. And with today's technology, you can end up on the air in a hurry. And and the next thing I knew, the uh, uh, Toronto was trying to get me to do a live hit into uh, their news network programming. Um, so I said, of course, you know, that's what I was there for. So I, I, we hooked stuff up, and I'm looking, I think it was into my cell phone. Uh, and we're doing like a FaceTime call or a Skype or one of those uh, tools. And uh, the question came, you know, and once again, this is like just minutes after this happened. The question was, how many people are dead? And I thought, that's just so unfair to ask that question of anyone right now because it's, you know, it's a mess. So I said, listen, this just happened. Uh, it's chaotic here. There are bodies or body parts all over the piece, place. People are literally picking, you know, bits of skin off the walls, um, and I have no idea how many people were uh, killed here. And but I said it. It was clear that I wasn't happy with the question. <laughs> and uh, the next thing I got was an apology from both the anchor and the producer. But quite frankly, they had no reason to apologize, and I told them that. If anybody had you know, handled it poorly, it was me. And it underlined to me as the anchor, the guy who's usually sitting in the chair uh, in Toronto, the difference between that kind of artificial atmosphere that is in a television studio and what the real deal is like. And I think sometimes those of us who do the anchoring tend to forget what it's like in the real world for the real correspondents, the real storytellers who are trying to, you know, let people know what's happening and why. And uh, so I, uh, I learned a lesson that day, and it wasn't about them, it was about me. Why is it important to you to make sure that the viewer feels that he or she is with you in the middle of a story? Well, I mean, what we're trying to do, all journalists, no matter what platform uh, they're working in, are trying to storytell. They're trying to do the best job they can in explaining the relevance of some story. And, you know, when you can make people feel that they are there, wherever that story is, you'll have achieved something in, in the storytelling arc. And uh, sometimes that's not very easy, and it takes the you know the best skills of a journalist. And I think the um, you know the overwhelming quality of a good journalist is the ability to tell stories, tell them accurately, truthfully, in context, and make their audience feel like they're there for a full understanding of what's happening. Hear, hear. 
I agree. Peter, we almost lost you in 1987, but I just mean to the United States. Uh, you were offered a huge contract by CBS. Uh, Sir Howard Stringer, I believe was his name, uh, offered you this big contract worth. Megado, how was it that we were able to keep you here in Canada? <laughs> um, you know, there were a combination of events, not the least of which was Nolton Nash, who was my predecessor as anchor, decided he wanted to write some more books and, uh, and, and was ready to sort of pull himself away from the uh, weekday national. And so suddenly there in front of me was the job that, you know, I'd, I'd literally dreamed of ever since almost that day in the, in the airport terminal in Churchill, Manitoba. And was I really going to leave it? I mean, the Americans offered a lot more money for a morning television anchor position. Um, but it's not to say the CBC was, you know, forced me to sell pencils at the corner. They were, paying, they were offering me a, a very good uh, income as well. Um, but at the end of the day, uh, you know, the CBC had taken a huge gamble on me in that airport that day in 1968. And uh, it's not that I felt I owed them anymore because I'd done a lot of stuff in the 20 years since that day, but it also told me where home was. Yeah. And uh, so I stayed. Yeah, I'm, we're glad you did. There were some <laughs> lighter sides to all of the many interviews and, and broadcasts that you did. And here's one that really stood out for me. And I, I'm sorry to chuckle ahead of it, but I'm going to tell you what it is. While you were working on a story of the passing of Pope John Paul II, I understand that you were mistaken for the president of Poland. Really? <laughs> uh, yeah, that was on a, a, a CNN international broadcast. They were taking the live feed of the, that the, uh, the Vatican was offering to networks all around the world. And um, I, I had happened to be in, inside St. Peter's at the, where the Pope was lying in state and uh, the cameras caught me standing there, and the CNN commentary was, and look, there he is, the president of Poland. <laughs> so that's, uh, I, I won my claim to fame on that one, and uh, certainly a lot of people have had fun with that since. This book, Off the Record, what do you want people to know about you that they didn't before? Well, you know, I listen, I'm, I'm just a journalist and a journalist who's been lucky enough to have experienced uh, the country and the world at some key moments. And uh, these are the stories from behind the headlines. And I think you learn a little bit about me, you learn about my, uh, my faults and, and, and perhaps a little bit of uh, what I do well. Um, and you learn about the experiences and the opportunities that I've witnessed. And I think you see, see elements of the country that have always impressed me, both uh, its natural beauty and its, uh, and its very smart, dedicated people. Um, and we also learned through this book, you know, some of the faults that we still have to deal with. Hmm. Your recent bestseller, Extraordinary Canadians, I think you need to add a final chapter on that book or in it, and that would be about you, because you are, Peter Mansbridge, an extraordinary Canadian. Off the record, it is a must-purchase, a must-read, and I thank you so much for giving us so much of your time right now in conversation. It means a great deal. And it's always a treat to talk to you, and I, uh, I appreciate the opportunity. Thanks so much. 
And thank you. Follow In Conversation with Ann Romer on Twitter at 1059 The Region. This is 1059 The Region.